welcome back to the Coffee and Heroes podcast, your weekly podcast coming to you from Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, a comic book store in Smithfield, Belfast. Your host as always, Alan, the owner and uh, operator for Coffee and Heroes, and joined as always by Mr. Keith Miller. Good evening, sir. How are you? I am good. Good. Just back from a wee holiday. Uh, got uh, got over to, uh, well, with all the all the, the, the flights and, uh, and all the, the crack with the delayed flights and cancelled flights and the price of flights over the Queen's work anniversary, we decided just to, to get the ferry over to England and uh, went to Red Rooster Festival in Suffolk, which is a Cajun and Americana festival. So really enjoyed that as well as a wee walk in the, uh, we climb a hike in the Peak District and some camping and all sorts of stuff. So feeling refreshed. What about you? Well, please just don't mention cancelled flights. Let's uh, touch wood right there that uh, obviously this coming weekend we have our whatever anniversary shenanigans, shall we say. You know, we're, you're, you're talking the Queen's Jubilee. Forget about that nonsense. Five years of Coffee and Heroes being celebrated uh, in full earnest this weekend. First of June's the official date, but we have, uh, of course, our in-store signing with Ram V this Saturday. Uh, he's flying over on the day. So again, touch wood, no flights being cancelled. Everything will run smoothly. So, but yeah, no, everything's good with us. As as I say, we just celebrated the store being open five years. Uh, obviously, and from a personal point of view, you know, inching closer and closer to being a father. Vicky's now off work; she's on maternity leave. We're uh, counting down the days to July twentieth, and uh, the 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 due date, shall we say, for our for our son. Uh, we haven't revealed the name just yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that as well. But I'm under strict orders to keep that uh, under wraps for now. But <laughs> very. Very strict orders because I haven't even heard it yet. <laughs> there are a total of four people who know it, and two of them are really random. No, sorry, five people. Two of them are really random. Declan Shelby knows for the simple uh-huh. reason that he did a sketch for us when he was in on the signing. Uh, my tattooist knows because I'm getting a tattoo done in a couple of weeks' time uh, in his honor already. And then my mum knows, and Vicky's mum and dad knows. So. There, there's a very small select amount, but uh, absolutely, it all will absolutely. be revealed soon. But yeah, no, just working away in the stores as hard as possible because I know once he comes along, maybe I won't have quite the the you know plethora of energy that I have on a daily basis to shift the store around. So got to get that store nailed mm. down and let it make sure it runs itself when uh, when he comes along. And uh, tell me a wee bit more about uh, Ram V. That's Saturday the eleventh. That is indeed. So we're recording this Wednesday, the eighth of June. Hopefully it'll be live Wednesday at the June. Don't hold me to that. But yeah, eleventh of June is the uh, the Ram B signing. So two o'clock to five o'clock in store. Uh, free signing, completely free. We'll have tons of his stuff on the day. You know, we'll have graphic novels. We'll have single issues. We'll have new releases. Aquaman Andromeda drops this week. Of course, his collaboration with Christian Ward, another guy who was good enough to chat to us in the podcast. You can find that really good interview and in elsewhere in the podcast network as well. So yeah, it's going to be a really, really good day. Really looking forward to it, you know, in celebration of being open as well. We're going to be doing like a blanket 10% discount on anything bought that day in the store as well. Uh, just give a little bit back to everybody who's supported us and helped us get to this point. But yeah, I mean, Ram, we've, we've again been lucky enough to chat to him in the pod. I was lucky enough to meet him at Thought Bubble. You know, outside of him being a ridiculously nice guy, he's just an exceptionally talented and unique voice, I think, in comics. So... You know, he's he's written some really great stuff. And, uh, yeah, definitely try something new out if you're meeting him that day, if you haven't read it before. Uh, because his, as I say, it's a very unique voice and just a really intelligent guy. So very much looking forward to it. And maybe even a bevy or two afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
Uh, the Ram View, the interview we did was episode 136, which went out on the 29th of April 2021. And this is episode, I think, 196. So that was 60 episodes ago. <laughs> Jeez, we can talk a lot about comics. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're here to do today. Yeah, we're, we're going to be doing reviews today. So again, we're playing our catch up and... You know, sort of settling into this new format as well, where we'll, we'll probably be doing monthly reviews, but picking out titles from each week that were our favourites from those weeks. Uh, so we're still playing a wee bit of catch-up, as I say. We're, we're going to be going back to the, the mists of the past in April. Uh, we're going to be covering four weeks' worth, two weeks in April, the 20th and the 27th, and then two weeks in May, the 4th and the 11th. And, you know, after we've put this one out, I think we'll be closer than we've been in a long time to actually being caught up, so... Yeah, speaking of being caught up, I uh, I obviously been on holiday last week, didn't pick up my pull list, and uh, you know today was new comic book day. I know because of the delay, it's tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that'll be two weeks worth of stuff to pick up. So I hope they're two light weeks, but uh, I have fears. Well, I mean, by our normal totals, uh, this week was actually a quiet week for you, believe it or not. Oh, I think good. this week for you, off the top of my head, was like maybe fifteen titles. I always oh, think good. if it comes under twenty for you, that's a light week. Yeah, uh, and then yeah. I think last week was around your normal sort of numbers, around twenty or so. So, there's a lot of good stuff there. I have no doubt you'll have no problem getting caught up. Brilliant, brilliant. It's not uh, quite the four weeks that you had to catch up on when you were away in Thailand. No, that's right, that's right. But yeah, hopefully have we got a time to hopefully have we got a time to do that. Get us get us up to date. Well, anyway, so we're kicking off with uh, the twentieth of April. Is that right? Twentieth of April, yes, indeed, and a slightly lighter week for both of us here. I think. You know, we're we're both in the teens, so for me, I had 18 titles in total. Uh, 8 DC, always trumping my Marvel pile, which was only two this week. Uh, and then I have 10 indie titles. And then as well as that, I picked up a hardcover, just talking about Marvel there. I, I always prefer with Marvel and the X-Men stuff to pick up sort of the hardcovers or the omnibuses or the collected editions. I just find it's a lot of titles to try and you know, read on a weekly basis, although you find it, you do it effortlessly. Uh, and this week it was the Inferno hardcover that came out. So uh, I picked that up as well as my 18 single issues. What about yourself? Uh, I was two behind you with 16 as my total. Um, I had six DC, uh, five Marvel and five Indie Plus. Uh, I picked up the Marvel role-playing game playtest rulebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was in which in previews, and you were kind enough to order to order for me at my request. So that's the the playtest book of the new uh, the new Marvel uh, role playing game. Uh, of course, I'm, a, I'm a, as much a, a role playing fan as I am a, a comic book fan. So putting Marvel and role playing together is always going to get me. Um, it was a wee a softback thing. It was almost like a like a chunky comic. Uh, I just went through some stripped down versions of the rules. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. I'm uh, I'm hoping to get a chance to sit down with. Uh, with our buddy Martin and um, play through something with him just so we can we can see how it works. Well, just don't let uh, Daredevil get trapped in an elevator when the power goes out if you're playing with Martin because <laughs> you'll never hear the end of it when you come up with a genius plan on how to get out of there. But... Yeah, I'll let you two argue about that. <laughs> 
discuss gentlemen discuss of course they don't of argue. course yes they yes, don't yes, argue. yes yes absolutely <laughs> but yeah as, as i say we've, we've settled in this new format now where we'll not be going in the honorable mentions and talking about pretty much everything the pull list we're just picking out sort of the creme de la creme from each week and for me this week it was a, a dc title i know shock and indeed horror it involved batman again shock and indeed horror and it was drawn by dan mora where we're off to a strong start with uh-huh. uh coffin heroes podcast bingo so for me the best title this week was batman superman world's finest and this was actually number two i remember that the first uh, issue came out a few weeks prior i think it was just during a really really strong week because it was close to being pick of the week then but i actually think issue two was even better so this is mark wade back riding in the dc universe and as i say dan moore on art so and it's really so great to have mark wade back in the, the dc universe i mean the man is a walking dc encyclopedia i mean he's a walking comics encyclopedia but in this case, a DC one, and he just exudes love and reverence for these characters, I think. And, you know, you pair him with the powerhouse artist team of Dan Moore on art and Tamara Bond villain on colours, who, of course, is a colourist on uh, Once in Future with Dan Moore. And you just know this is title's never going to disappoint. And as I say, I think issue two is even better. So issue two kicks off with Superman recovering from a, a critical injury and the world's finest find themselves teaming up with Niles Calder and the Doom Patrol. You know, they realise they need to join forces to solve the mystery behind the rise of an ancient evil with its eyes on reclaiming the known world. So, so far, so generic superhero, you know, superhero 101 really. And it's almost by the numbers, but for me what elevates it here is that creative team. I mean, Wade's able to pepper the script with loads of tiny moments, both humorous and confrontational, showing he knows how these characters tick. I mean, there's a great throwback here to classic stories such as the Tower of Babel. I mean, except this time it's Batman who's put in his place by someone else who knows a little bit more. But before we even get to those superhero shenanigans, you know, there's a brilliant tense scene that kicks things off with a, an operation to save Superman's life. And what was already set up as a complicated surgery becomes a, you know, a Hail Mary on the powers of Negative Man. You know, the hype to build this scene and its dynamic were really, really good, perfectly balanced by Batman's worry for his friends. I mean, one of the many great things about this series is that the two heroes actually seem to be friends. I mean, this is a very old school concept. These days, it's all Batman v Superman. You thought I couldn't get a BVS reference in there. Yeah. <laughs> but you've also, what's great here as well, you've got a little side story going on as well featuring Robin and Supergirl, which is entertaining and valuable in its own right in relation to the main story. But I think what Wade's doing here as well is he's clearly sowing seeds for future tales. And we can only hope so because their back and forth is fantastic and it's lighthearted and it's genuinely endearing and funny. And, you know, we spoke about it in this podcast, I don't know how many times, but after Tom Keane and Bill Quievely's stunning run on Supergirl, and now this, she's she's fast becoming one of my favourite DC characters. And again, what's great here, because Mark Wade has that encyclopedic knowledge, the DC universe in general is on full display here. You know, it may say Batman and Superman in the title, but you've got Batman, Superman, Robin, Supergirl, the Doom Patrol, Flash, Wonder Woman even making appearances as well. And it really makes the whole DC universe feel connected and a living, breathing world. And we've spoken about it before. That's not always the case. It's something I think Marvel do much better. But it's really nicely connected here. The art again, as you'd expect, is always a standout. You know, there's a genuine case, I think, to be made that Dan Mora is the best artist in superhero comics right now. And given the level of talent around, that is not a small statement. You know, he's he's even able to change up his art style for a flashback scene here. And it's no less impressive. You know, he's, he's clearly not just a one-trick pony. 
and I'll be keeping an eye on just how versatile he is in upcoming issues. So, big words, big words. They are, and and the thing is, when I wrote that and I said it, I thought to myself, you know, who would I put close? And you know, there's great examples out there. You know, Marco Cicchetto, You know, John Romita Jr. You know, you've got Jorge Jimenez. You've got you know all these great, great artists around. And you know, of course, I'm missing about a hundred of them. But I genuinely think Dan Moore may be my favorite. And his style of Once in Future and Fantasyland is already wonderful. You know, I I don't think there's anybody that draws expressive faces better than him. You only have to look at the main characters of Once in Future for that. But I think in terms of superhero stuff, there's he's got this really classic look to it. It's almost Jim Lee the way he does it. But it's not like he's a Jim Lee clone or anything like that. He, he still has very much his own style, but it's just it reminds me of Jim Lee quite a bit. But uh, yeah, just all in all, it's it's a thoroughly, thoroughly wonderful series. There's something just so wonderfully old school about it. And uh, for me, it's already amongst DC's best titles at the moment. So yeah, Batman Superman World's Finest, numero deux. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I sort of, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not terribly familiar nor a fan of the Doom Patrol. Uh, so that was a wee wee bit lost on me, but I am a big fan of Supergirl and uh, and Tim, Tim, Tim Drake Robin. I hadn't realised that they had some sort of a relationship in the past. Uh, that's interesting. Um, that was a, a, a that was a, a kind of an interesting one. And the devil, the devil Nezha, that is the 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 villain here, or the the big bad, the the almost unseen big bad. I'm pretty sure that same character was mentioned somewhere else this month. It might have been Teen Titans Academy or mm-hmm. something along those lines. So there's an, another wee something there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it's the first two issues. I love Mark Wade, obviously. Uh, he's got a, a pedigree at, at Marvel as well as DC, as you say. Um, but it hasn't quite been up there above uh, above some other stuff for me just yet with the first two issues. But definitely agree with you. The second issue was stronger than the first. I mean, the first issue very much had that knockdown, drag out, you know, Batman, Superman action. You know, mm-hmm. this was this was a, a, a little more, a little more, I think. <laughs> well, it's definitely a series going in the right direction. As I say, if you keep that creative team on there, you will be keeping me on that title. So. Yeah, just wonderful stuff, and that was my pick of the week. How about for yourself? What uh, what stood out the most for you on the twentieth of April? For me, uh, I can't seem to get enough of the world of Arrowsmith, as created and built by superstar team Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco. So, my pick is Arrowsmith behind Enemy Lines number four. It's from Image. It's the fourth issue of the second six issue series of Arrowsmith following on from the original six-issue mini that was recently uh, re-released by Image as the So Smart and Their Fine Universes trade pa- uniform, So Smart and Their Fine Uniforms trade paperback, uh, which was just just phenomenal and really set out that world for me. I had started reading Behind Enemy Lines before I had read So Smart and Their Fine Uniforms. You can do that, but certainly the, 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 the initial sort of six-issue series uh, adds a whole lot of context for you. So the tale is set in an alternative historical World War One setting in Europe, uh, redrawn some thousand years previously by what's called the Peace of Charlemagne, which uh, crossed the world of fairies and magic and trolls and other creatures with our world. The world then evolved along parallel lines, and now the Prussian forces allied with dark powers push against the allied forces which include American airman Fletcher Arrowsmith, our protagonist, 
who alongside his fellows flies through a magical bond with his his dragonette, this uh, this little small dragon type thing, and harnesses magic spells instead of, of firearms. So it's quite the world. And previously, Fletcher uh, has been sent on a, a mysterious secret mission, uh, been deliberately captured and placed in a POW camp, and finally has met his contact, Guy. And they must escape from the camp so Fletcher can reach his dragonette and uh, get his oracalc chips, which are these little magical artifacts made of uh, mystical metal that aid in the flying process. But those chips have got a a secret plan on them that only Guy can can decode. So a few nights later, Guy uses his powerful magic to destroy much of the prison camp. And then in the ensuing chaos, the captured airmen call for their dragonets and start to fly away. They're all attacked, but Guy and Fletcher slip away over land and take a shortcut through the uh, the outer marches of the Fey lands. And this leads them, this lets them sort of travel further and faster and hide their trail. Uh, they meet guys' contacts from the resistance and they get a chance to, to rest up. So this issue, issue four, continues apace, properly introducing us to the, the antagonist, the Black Baron, uh, the werewolves that he'll use to track Fletcher and Guy, and the insidious agents of the crooks, who are church inquisitors, like witch hunters, who decry and hunt all things magical and fairy. Fletcher's seduction by uh, resistance agent reminds us of the the pains and the stresses of war, the stresses of war, and grabbing, you know, those flickers of pleasure where possible, whether that's morally right or wrong. And the tension continues to escalate between Fletcher and Guy, thanks to the mission secrets being kept by the by the latter agent and the difference in rank and in their knowledge of the world and the powers of magic, and also because of the sacrifices of the other POWs by Guy in order to cover the the escape by himself and, and Fletcher. But this is war, and some things, Guy tells Fletcher, are bigger than the lives of individuals. Um, Guy's an enjoyable character, and through the snippets of knowledge that he can give Fletcher about the nature of the mission, Kurt Busiek gives us some amazing expositional world-building uh, with the piece of Charlemagne. Humans made a pact with the Lightborn uh, and barriers were set to keep humans out of the Fey li- lands. But more recently, due to the war, the Allied powers are negotiating with the the Sealy Court, the Fairy Court, for safe passage through their lands, passage that would let the Allied armies travel anywhere undetected, as Fletcher and Guy have just done. And the Central powers, the Prussians, have learned about this, and they took a hostage, a middling-ranked princess of the Lightborn named uh, Lyrilai, and Guy needs to get her free and home before anyone realizes what's happened to her. And the only way to do this is through the trolls, and he needs Fletcher because, as we learned in the first miniseries, Fletcher has a, a friend uh, who I think is called Rocky, who is a who is a rock troll and 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 uh, who Fletcher grew up around. We also learn more about the magic of the land. You know, the 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 real world building and background building stuff. As Guy informs Fletcher that that he himself is technically royalty. And this comes back a few days later then when Fletcher asks about the magic that he can do, which is much more powerful than than Fletcher can do himself. And in this world, there's a connection between magic and the land and the land and the people. And power flows into the kings in exchange for their protection of the land. With time then, that power was shared with lesser nobility. And with time and intermarriage, these connections forms new links with the powers of related lands. Um, but the only trouble is that in using those powers, Guy has revealed his ancestry to the enemy, uh, and that's a that's a bad thing. I mean, it's the 
it's the detail and the word crafting that really draws me to much as to this as much as the likability of of the characters and of of the protagonist Fletcher Arrowsmith, who's sort of you know he's he's a, a Colombian airman amongst amongst uh, Brits and Europeans, you know, and Carlos Pacheco's art details are like subtle and beautiful, and they add so much to the mystery of the magic and the world and they. The awesome definition that's lent to the era in which this takes place and the geography that it takes place in makes all the magical aspects of the world seem like they, they absolutely fit there and belong there. And uh, Busset gives us details without giving us everything, gifting us with the understanding to to enjoy the story, but all the time maintaining the mystery. So, I mean, as you can tell, I'm absolutely loving this world, loving the characters and this book. And, I mean, despite the sometimes weight of the exposition exposition it's never it's never boring and it's lovely to look at it's i'm, I'm just hoping it's the continuation of, of much more to come you know there was the, the first six issue miniseries i think this is a six six issue miniseries and uh, as far as i know they're only they're only halfway through the story so uh more to come i hope are you uh are you reading this no i i haven't i mean i i'm a big fan of carlos pacheco so it's uh the art would be enough to to bring me to and obviously kurt busek i mostly know his he was the writer on marvels wasn't he along with yeah. uh, obviously alex yeah. ross on art amongst many many other things of course but i do wonder i know that you had obviously picked up the hardcover do you think you need to read that before jumping into this new series or does it lay uh, enough groundwork you, you could read it on its own no as i say i started this this series behind enemy lines before i read the hardcover oh, okay. uh, which was which was the initial uh so 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 smart in their fine uniforms uh so i mean i did start it and then sort of picked up the hardcover whenever it was re-released so i can uh, i can fire you the hardcover absolutely and uh, i think you'll you'll get into it hardcover also has a primer at the back about you know the potted history of the world and so forth so mm -hmm. it's really good stuff it's really good stuff and as you say i mean kurt busek is astro city you know uh superman jla did some conan stuff for dark horse created thunderbolts wrote avengers forever which is just about my my favorite Avengers story, uh, JLA Avengers with the late lamented uh, and missed George Perez. Um, you know, so really, really, I mean, just a just a, an absolute legend of a writer. Like, yeah, too like a wee hardcover to get caught up and stuff as well. So, may just have to take you up on that at some point soon and throw it on the pile, I suppose, of uh, mm -hmm. the ridiculous amount of stuff I have to read. But uh, yeah, it comes with a sterling recommendation there, and then of course with the uh, this follow up series as well. Uh, behind enemy lines so yeah case pick of the week then 20th of april Arrowsmith. i was gonna say Arrowsmith. it's terrible uh <laughs> Arrowsmith behind enemy lines number four so so yeah so that rounds off the 20th of april and we jump straight into the last week of april which is the 27th and it definitely uh you know to paraphrase well-known cop movies shit got real this week uh 30 titles in total that is a big week by anybody's <laughs> standards uh 10 dc five marvel a full half of my titles were in the 15 titles plus an omnibus i haven't fully uh jumped into yet but i really really want to it's it's actually top of my omnibus pile which uh this week saw the release of the thor by jason aaron omnibus volume one which essentially covered a lot of his god of thunder stuff uh it, it went right up i think to some of the jane foster stuff there's so much to it uh, I'm really looking forward to, to jumping into that. I know it's one of your favorite runs of all time. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. A, a rather big week for me and a rather big week for you as well. 
Yeah, buddy. 26 titles for me, uh, four behind you. But imagine you in the DC. I have 10 DC titles. Uh, I wonder if there was much variation in what they were. Um, I have eight Marvel titles and eight indie titles. Plus, I also picked up uh, the DC Black Label Sandman book one, which is the first book of four of Neil Gaiman's uh, classic, which I have yet to read. Uh, so uh, given that I haven't picked up my pull list yet, I think I'm going to get into that this evening. Looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. I mean, the trailer obviously dropped recently for the TV show. It looks very impressive. And I think I'm I'm the same as you. I'm sort of uh, in a hurry now to read it before it comes out. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those sort of blank spots on my ledger as well. I have read the first absolute, so about the first maybe 18, 20 issues, but that's as far as I've got. So, yeah, time is ticking on that one. But, but yeah, when it comes to picks of the week, it's it's interesting, you know, just looking at what we just chatted about with uh, the previous week's releases. It was a number two and a number four were our picks of the week. Uh, whereas this week, we're both going for number one. So sort of brand new titles, if you will, as opposed yeah, to continuations. Um, I'm very glad you picked the number one that you did because that means I could pick the number one that, that I did because if you hadn't picked that, I would have had to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I could see us even switching titles this week as well because we'll, we'll certainly get onto it when we're chatting about yours. But that, that was a, a jumping back on point for me. And again, we'll chat about it more in a second. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, for me this week, I'm I'm glad my pick of the week was what it was. You know, I mean, we had this title on our radars for quite some time, so... My pick of the week this week was Bloodstained Teeth, number one. So written by Christian Ward and art by Patrick Reynolds. And as I say, we'd had it on the radars at Coffee and Heroes for quite some time. You know, from the gorgeous looking preview art from Patrick Reynolds popping up everywhere in the back of image issues and all sorts of places to the solicitations, which promised an original take on the vampire genre to the fact that we just had a really good chat with series co-creator Christian Ward on the podcast. You know, this title just screamed potential. And, you know, there's another plug for a previous podcast interview. You can pick that mm-hmm. up further back. Uh, and, yeah, I'm delighted to say it did not disappoint. I mean, Image Image Comics always have plenty of great titles out at any time. And this one slots right in there with the best, I think. And I think part of the reason for that is the setup, like all the best stories, I think, is deceptively simple. You know, our point of view character is Atticus Sloan, a purebred vampire who realizes immortality doesn't come cheap. And so over the years has partaken in the practice of turning humans into vampires. For a price, of course. And this has actually let him enjoy a life of luxury, of fast cars, the best homes, and all the spoils you can think of. He's the quintessential cool, rule-breaking, let's just say it, asshole vampire. But the thing is, this has also brought him to the attention of the First Council of Vampires, and they do not look kindly on turning humans into what they refer to as sips because they're often more violent and harder to control than sort of the OG vampires. So they basically task Atticus with tracking down and killing all those he has turned. Otherwise, they'll kill him. So it's a really simple setup. It sets up a ticking clock situation. It sets up a multitude of character situation and locations as well. So this book has the freedom, I think, to really go anywhere, which is just really exciting. And the world itself of vampires, I think, is set up brilliantly in the first issue. You know, it shows off the different classes and ideologies, as well as showcasing both the glamour of and the seedy side to being a vampire, and also the vicious violence side while feeding as well. So, you know, this world, it's, it's, we talk about it all the time, you know, world building, it's so, so important. And you can really 
tell that this has been cleverly thought out by Christian Ward, who would, you know, usually be killing it with the art as opposed to writing. But he takes to it here like a duck to water. I'm sure this won't be the last title he's only on writing duties for as well. But then you talk about that art. I mean, Patrick Reynolds, it's an artist I'm not too familiar with. And I remember when we were chatting to Christian about this, we had asked him how long he hoped this series would be. And part of his worry was that, oh crap, people are going to realize how good Patrick Reynolds is and steal him off me. And you can tell why here. I mean, this this is the stuff of show-stealing legend here. You know, the world feels bright and vibrant, alluring and sexy, yet always with a hint of darkness and danger lurking below the surface. I think the character designs are all varied and detailed and the action moves at a great pace as well. The art is nothing without the colours though and it is vividly brought to life by Heather Moore's colours which are all neon bright and almost psychedelic and there's also great lettering here by Hassan Otsman Eliho. I've probably butchered that name but oh, the lettering is fantastic. You know, the sound effects included into it, the, the changes in dialogue and all those kind of things. And of course, he may be writing but of course Christian Ward had to you know, scratch that artistic itch by doing the main cover. I swear him and Declan are the same, you know, him doing it for time before time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as I say, this is set up with so much freedom and the possibilities, I think, are endless. You know, Atticus has been turning people for over 40 years. So, you know, this is a title that could have a good long run and it's a world I'm more than happy to spend more and more time in. Just really, really impressive. And again, one of those issues I, I read a couple of times. So I, I think it's easy to say you enjoyed this one as well then. Yeah, big style. Uh, I mean, I was I was really looking forward to it after we after we spoke to to Christian um, a few weeks back. Uh, they, I mean, the setup is reminiscent of of the Blade, the original Blade movie. You know, you have the as you say, the OG vampires, the the the, the natural born vampires, and then you have the turned vampires. Deacon uh, Frost. You know, so yes, Deacon Frost indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and his so there's there's a there's a familiarity there to that setup, but uh, uh, which which I really enjoyed it. It sort of puts you in the picture really really quickly, uh, and you feel comfortable. But what is also interesting then is is that juxtaposed against you know modern life, you know the internet and phones and and all of that sort of stuff, Instagram and TikTok, which you you immediately see whenever a sip that he's just turned is on. Is on Instagram or TikTok, you know, going hashtag Fang Life or whatever it is, and he's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so it's uh, it's very good. I also enjoyed the inclusion of his driver as his confidant, you know, who's another another sip. But uh, but yeah, really really enjoyed it. As you say, Patrick Reynolds' art. Uh, I think Patrick Reynolds is is originally a fine artist, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Like a, I mean, we know he's a fine artist, but I mean that in the you know the genre of fine art. Um, you know, as opposed to you know coming up in the in the comic arena, but uh, yeah, I could I could see this going. I would I would be on this for a long time if it was going for a long time, yeah. for sure. Well, here's hoping it does. I seem to remember that Christian said he had at least the first fifteen or sixteen issues mapped out. You know, so it's interesting because I think creators, when it comes to indie books now, are they're very savvy about the business side of it as well. You know, Robert Kirkman is the best example in the world of this. He does six issue arcs, which fit perfectly into trade paperbacks. He does 48 issues into a compendium. So therefore, he does 190, well, 193 issues. So there's four perfectly sized compendiums. And I mm -hmm. seem to remember with Christian saying that, I think he said he had 18 issues maybe planned. So that's three trades or one beautiful hardback. You know, they're always thinking long form now, I think, as well about the business side of things. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, you don't necessarily need if you're you're putting together an omnibus, you can always put back matter in there to maybe fill in, you know, some of the so you don't have to think so formulaically as six issues, eighteen issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, so yeah, you can always put in interviews or and uh, who was it? I can't remember uh, who it was recently was saying in an interview. Um, oh, it was uh, it was um, Daniel Warren Johnson was uh, saying that about that about Peter Ray Bill that they you know Marvel had said he had said he wanted a few extra pages and Marvel had given him more pages than he needed so he did uh, an interview with was it Neil Adams mm-hmm. uh, or they I can't remember who he interviewed so so he he got the opportunity to do that to take up those last three pages that he didn't he didn't want just to extend the story to For fill the space sake, you know yeah. yeah exactly so I would hate to think of of creators doing that. You know what I mean, but there are ways and means, you know, to 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 satisfy for for win win win. You yeah, know, very much so. Well, as I say, I'm more than happy for this to continue for uh, for yeah. as long as Christian has stories to tell in this world. Because again, it's just it feels very lived in already. There's a lot going on in the first issue, a lot established, and as I say, you've you've so much freedom here to go anywhere in the world. It can be older guys he turned. It can be younger. It can be kids he's turned, and then you make them really deplorable. It can mm-hmm. it can be all sorts. There's there's just tremendous freedom here. So, uh, and if the issues are as good as the first one was, then yeah, it's a it's a special series. So, yeah, Bloodstained Teeth number one was my pick of the week for the twenty seventh of April, and therefore, what was your number one that, that caught your eye the most this week? Well, I don't think it's any secret that it's hard for me to see past John Romita Jr. returning to Spider-Man for a relaunch of the Web Slingers core title alongside writer Zeb Wells, who proved his mettle as part of the Beyond board for Spidey's last mega arc. So my pick for uh, the 27th of April was Amazing Spider-Man number one. Um, And I mean, the question is, do we really need another Amazing Spider-Man number one? And... I would say, to be fair, on this occasion, maybe the answer is yes. Um, the Ben Reilly Spider-Man Beyond storyline ended an era in a way. It's Spidey's 60th anniversary. John Romita Jr.'s back home where he belongs. So, I don't know, this time a, a new first issue maybe feels worthwhile, maybe feels right. Um, I, th- I think Marvel have always solved this problem, though, because of legacy numbering. It's, mm. you know, because it's... Something like Spider-Man deserves to have its numbers high up, you know, 60 years of Spidey and everything else. But just having that number one, I think, does give people the option of jumping into a story. And this is where it stood out for me. But, uh, yeah, it says yep. it all that you think a number one was deserved because I know you're normally against the, the yes, absolutely. scenario. Yes, exactly. And as you say, I mean, what we have here is a, is a very solid jumping on point for anyone who's been looking to get back into Spidey or get into Spidey in the first place, new readers will find this to be a great issue to to, to onboard, um, as Zeb Wells' story doesn't really require any you know previous knowledge, per se, uh, to get up to speed. Uh, there's a lot of questions been asked, been asked, and, you know, maybe maybe even for, for older readers, you know, there might be, it might be the other way around, they might be looking for something even more substantial to hold on to. I certainly enjoyed it. There was so much going on. Um, the story starts in a giant crater outside of Philadelphia, I think, and you've got a battle-ravaged Spider-Man kneeling alone in that crater, screaming. Uh, and six months later, Peter Parker has returned to New York, and a, uh, a lot has changed for him. A lot has stayed the same, including 
you know, his hard luck, bill collectors hunting him down for unpaid hospital bills. Um, and then there are other things that are that are more significant. You know, his relationship with Aunt May seems more distant uh, and, you know, not wanting to know what's happened to him and his friends. have no idea where he's been. He's trying to stay aloof and stay away, you know. Then at the same time, you get Peter's buddy Randy, Randy Robertson, Joe Robertson's son, uh, deciding to ask his girlfriend, uh, his girlfriend who happens to be Tombstone's daughter, Tombstone the mobster. Uh, so Randy's asked her to marry him and wants Peter's back up in case Tombstone, uh, <laughs> in case Tombstone goes off. And uh, Tombstone, he's having his own issues as Kingpin's son wants to set up his own territory and and the rest of the bosses aren't on board. Uh, Peter's trying to rebuild his life, find a job. You know, Spider-Man, meanwhile, sparks a mob war and Mary Jane, God knows what's going on there. She reveals <laughs> a fairly significant secret that seems to change things. But what Zeb Wells does all the way through this is develop, you know, is, is, is deliver a, a really sort of uh, compelling, intriguing issue with, with a, a great mystery at its core. And the whole question you're asking yourself is what happened to Peter? What caused him to leave the city? What happened while he was gone? And, you know, all the friends that we know love him, you know, coming in to confront him, you know, just really enhances the enhances the drama side of it. And, you know, then him confronting his enemies as Spider-Man is a really cool juxtaposition, you know. Um, and that's that's what works really well, I think. That's where Spider-Man works best is whenever you have a balance of Spider-Man and Peter Parker, and uh, and that's that's what this does perfectly. The story grabbed me with its its mystery and that central question, and held me with the great dialogue and the tone, and not to mention the return of John Romita Jr. Uh, he's back home. He's back where he should be. You know, he's he's top notch all the way through this. I mean, John Romita Jr. is a definitive Spider-Man artist. He's a, he's a legacy artist, you know, his father senior was a definitive Spider-Man artist and, and he's, he's updated his style. I think a little bit, um, a lot of the hard edges have gone. It's not, it's not, it's not a huge change, but it seems, it seems a, a little bit softer maybe than the last time he was on Spider-Man and it works really, really well with the story. It's, uh, you know, it's punchy, it's thwippy, it's fast paced. It's it's got all the you know these interrelations of characters and and pulling characters you know from Peter Parker's life and from Spider Man's amazing rogues gallery. You know one of the best rogues galleries in comics, next to Batman and Daredevil, I think. Um, you know and uh, you know these opportunities for drama that that Zeb Wells is building. There's this central plot, uh, you know, that just comes complete with this whole range of subplots and this one big central mystery and as i say we have this nice balance of spidey and peter and you know zeb really hits the mark with that spectacularly well you might say um so i mean the amazing spider-man number one this relaunch i think is the complete package when it comes to spider-man's comics and and and, and what's best is that it promises you know the reader from the the very start to the from the cover in fact to the final page that there's there's a lot more to come um you know zeb wells john romita jr the rest of the creative team you know have taken what what is and should be marvel comics flagship title 
uh, to uh, an exemplary level um, of excellent superhero comicdom once again. Yeah, I mean, as you say, there's just certain things in comics that just feel right, and John Romita Jr. doing Spider-Man just feels right. I mean, I'm I'm a fan for a number of years, and you know, we were lucky enough to have him at DC there for a while, and enjoyed his work at DC. I, I still am a big fan of Superman Year One, the Black Label title he did with uh, Frank Miller, for example. But there's just something undeniable. You can't say that he doesn't belong at Marvel drawing spider-man the only thing he could compare to that is being at marvel drawing daredevil would be the other one so but yeah no i i love this i mean i nick spencer's run i i dipped in and out of i mean i don't have that emotional attachment to ben riley for example that someone like yourself would have i remember reading the spider-man 2099 stuff and being left cold but really enjoying Mm. runs like hunted for example and and Mm. there was gold among it but I felt I was I was due a, a, a jumping on point again, and this definitely provided that. I mean, it's interesting because it seems to have... Is it fair to say it sort of ignored a lot of Nick Spencer's run, aside from that engagement? That's the one thing that stands out to me. Because that happened during uh, Spencer's run with Tombstone's daughter. I don't think there's anything being ignored here, Alan. Uh, I, think, I think there's... There, we've got a six month gap. Don't forget. Yeah, I mean that's even that setup is really intriguing. You don't get that setup often in comics. You'll maybe get, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of days or something. But there's so many times in this reading that I thought to myself, "Have I missed something?" But I'm like, "No, this is the format no, they're using, yeah, and you're yeah, seeing it is, it is. You're, you're seeing the aftermath before it's explained, and that's really really yeah. interesting in itself." So we have we have the mystery here of. You know, the, there's six months to fill between Peter sitting in that crater screaming. So there, there's a mystery there. There's a, a gap of time. But we also have what happened, what led to that crater. Yeah. You know, and, and is there what 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 time period is there between the end of Spider-Man Beyond and what happened at the end of that and and what led to that crater? So that's a story that needs told as well. Um, so it could be it could be more than six months. Yeah, uh, you know as well. So I don't think there's. I think this is this is in continuity. I don't think we're ignoring anything. I don't think we're ignoring. Uh, certainly, the free comic book day issue would suggest we're not ignoring what happened in the Spider Man Beyond mm-hmm. uh, storyline. Um, so I think I think it's all to all to play for here. Yeah. But yeah, just tone was fantastic the whole way through. It It was playful. It was humorous in places. It was typical down in your luck, Peter Parker. I mean. He's drawn with stubble and everything, you know. That's how bad things yeah. have got for Peter. <laughs> well, he definitely he shaves, you know. He shaves by the time, you know. So we get rid of the we get rid of the beard. But yeah, the last time we, I don't know. Whenever you see Peter with stubble, you know it's bad. You know it's really you saw bad. Saw Peter with stubble during during life theft and power and responsibility and the clone saga quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, just that was a great jumping on point, as I say, and it sets up loads of interesting mysteries. If you even have a you know, a flirting familiarity with the character and the, the backstory and the relationships and stuff, you'll feel right at home here, I think, you know, straight away. there's Again, there's just something warm and familiar and nostalgic about Romita Jr. on there, and I think Seb Wells is a great uh, partner for his for his art style as well. And we should say as well, a lovely, big, oversized issue one. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those... Marvel can be guilty of this. I find Marvel are guilty of this more than DC, but... Anytime they launch a new number one, it's an excuse for it to be an overpriced title. And sometimes mm. you don't get value for it. And DC are guilty of it to a degree as well. I'm not saying they're just the only ones. 
but this felt like great value this was like six dollar title and you almost felt like you were reading a graphic or something it was uh it, like even the paper quality the stock quality felt better to me i don't know i just yeah and i mean what felt good to me was the characters that he was using uh white rabbit who you know this was uh, some parts of this were very dark but white white rabbit's kind of a light-hearted character you know mm-hmm. uh but he used her he used her well tombstone obviously long history with spider-man digger was in there uh you know it's there, there were so many so many callbacks that made me think okay this is good this is you know we're we're seeing some we're going to see some classic spider-man here uh crime master was in there the rose who of course is uh we're familiar with with uh kingpin's other son uh from daredevil but you know and the rose is also here who is who's the son of the son of kingpin as well yeah. Uh, so there's a lot going on and we even realize with issue two not it's not a spoiler massively of any kind but there's even a part in issue two that will make you cringe to your very core when tombstone sort of laments the fact that they cost two grand a tooth oh i know i know i, w- I was kind of wondering what 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 was going on with his teeth because uh he, he was quite he had a quite a quite a winning smile there yeah. for a while you know when that that that's explained uh, so that was a, a wee nod as well yeah and a little bit uncomfortable to read and look at mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah no great pick as keith says if you're looking for a, a way of getting back into amazing spider-man i mean i i can imagine if you come into the store a few months back and you see issue 87 or issue 90 it's slightly off-putting but in this case you see a brand new number one and this flew off the racks like i ordered loads in and i think the the numbers it, it does show the difference the number one makes and it was the same when it wasn't a number one but it was the same when tinian took over from tom Keane's batman run people were like right brand new creator brand new creative team starting point don't need to lose 85 issues so to speak and i think we've we've had an extra 10 to 12 people on amazing spidey ever since it relaunched so so people do like those starting points as much as us traditionalists may not like them consistently resetting or doing number ones or whatever it does help bring in new readers and and that is definitely the one positive side to it so so yeah so two number ones were our picks of the week for the 27th of april we had bloodstained teeth number one from myself amazing spiral man number one from keith but if you held a gun to our heads i'd probably say those were our both our two favorite titles of that week so yeah we jump straight from april then and into may and we go back to a, a slightly quieter week again it's interesting how it fluctuates in uh, in these few weeks but fourth of may for me uh May the fourth be with you. Uh, Nineteen <laughs> titles in total for me. I bet none of them were Star Wars. Uh, five DC, two Marvel, as ever. Just a ridiculous amount of indie. Twelve, and uh, I had one of the. Well, I say two Marvel. It was actually three because I had a Mighty Marvel Masterworks, which are the uh, the the budget re-releases for all the early uh, stories for all of their core characters. And this week for me, it was Avengers Volume Two. I think that printed Avengers Eleven to Twenty off the top of my head. Uh, just uh-huh. I'm just enjoying going back and rediscovering that old stuff. So uh, yeah, those were my numbers. What about yourself? I had sixteen titles, so coming up three behind you. Uh, two of mine were DC. Two, your two Marvel. Uh, seven of mine were Marvel and seven of mine were Indie. So I also had two of the the Marvel free comic book day issues. I think it was was it Spider Man and the Avengers. Spider Man was one and the Avengers was the other. Yeah, I think one was setting up Avengers X Men Eternals and the other yeah. one was yeah Spidey Venom, which seems to be their 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 go to every thing, year at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you'll find I had three Marvel in the answer. You know, it's um, two to match my two. I had three Marvel with Mighty Marvel oh. Masterworks. 
Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was just I was just looking at your core issues. <laughs> well, our core issues are to be ignored for this month because despite my low Marvel tools and Keith's low DC tools, we both went for indie books, so <laughs> you can ignore all of that anyway. So my pick of the week for this week was uh, a slight, maybe a slightly off-center pick. Uh, it's a title called Quests Aside. It was a brand new number one. It's uh, written by Transformers alumni Bran Shermer, and the art is by Elena Gogu. Now, these are two creators that I don't have an, a ton of knowledge about, so it was nice to go into this nice and fresh. And this was released by Vault Comics, and I, I do notice that when we're doing the previews podcast more and more, we're starting to recommend more and more stuff from Vault. I think they're releasing more and more interesting comics now. For a while, it did seem like they had set their stall out to be primarily a, a sci-fi and horror label. But with quests aside, we're entering the realm of fantasy and adventure. And if this is a sign of things to come, they should definitely be working within as many different genres as possible. This is one I don't think you were on this, were you? No, but uh, you and I don't know if he even noticed it. Uh, but now you've mentioned fantasy genre and vault <laughs> comics. I'm going, OK, I hope there's a number one sitting about somewhere. Yeah, I, I'll always get you sorted. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is a first issue rich in world building, character development, and lots of humor. And they throw in a little sense of peril as well to close out the issue. So our eyes and ears for this whimsical tale belong to Barrow. Barrow is he's a man spoken about in tones of awe and wonder for the fantastical sort of, you know, quote, career and adventure he has been. You know, he... even like yourself. It's funny you should say that. <laughs> even going so far as to fighting side by side with royalty. So he was a hero for hire, essentially. He was always motivated more by what was good for the world as opposed to financial gain. But he's left all that behind for a simpler life by settling down, opening a tavern of his own called Quest Aside, and has created a safe space for all the eclectic people of Fantasyland. I mean, the parallels with Coffee and Heroes here are there for everyone to see. So it's funny you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're we're slowly introduced to this world through sort of, you know, classical fantasy minor infractions, you know, in day-to-day -day business that our, our characters have to deal with, you know, things such as local gangs trying to increase taxes for Barrow and, of course, him having none of it because the local gangs think this guy's some big oaf who owns a bar. But, you know, as I say, he's this famous uh, adventurer. You know, there's the inner workings of the friendships between our protagonists, including... You know, those who lust for something a bit more than just friendships. You know, there's personal quests of vengeance introduced and also ensuring their work is appreciated and they receive the credit that, you know, they think they deserve. It's it's sort of a, it reminds me a little bit of the start of Lord of the Rings. You know, when Gandalf is coming back and, you know, they're they're setting up his party, or sorry, Bilbo's party. And it's, it's just the day-to-day -day inner workings of that, you know, that part of the world, so to speak. And they do it really well in this, you know. And while everyday life in a fantasy town like that with, you know, walking skeletons and real magic is enough to, to add drama for most, the evil king, who of course Barrow has a previous relationship with, has just announced that he plans to shut the tavern down and convert it into barracks because they're clearly at war, even though everybody knows that the king rules over everything. You know, he's, the, the, the king is just presented as this greedy politician. I mean, imagine that thought. Uh, in this, <laughs> who just wants to have everything for himself. You know, it's all in the name of the greater good, of course. You know, let's draw a line and move on. Well, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so the gang are faced here with losing their livelihood and their, you know, newfound family as well. So, of course, Barrow and his employees must find a new way to stay open. I mean... This is everything a great adventure book should be. It's filled with interesting and varied characters. You've got great recurring story ideas and jokes. I mean, 
there's there's an orc stand-up comedian who works in the bar and delivers dad jokes that are just so bad they're good and i get the feeling that's going to be a recurring theme in every issue so i look forward to more of them issue to issue great economy of storytelling you know there's a lot covered here you know it's only one issue in but there's a lot covered each character already seems individual you know they they're different um classes of people they're different that some of them are animals as humans some of them are you know just pure human beings it's there's there's just a great variety there and you know and they all have their own defined personality and ticks i mean the cook who, uh, for the bar even has a living cleaver that is sarcastic as hell, you know, you know, always giving him abuse. You know, just wonderful first issue, you know, it's it's almost like reading sort of like D&D, something like that. I mean, the narrator is even a character of his own, you know, as, as you know, he's not part of the story, but he is part of the story sort of thing. Just a lot of fun characters, great time overall, roll on issue two, which I believe as we record as part of this new this week's new releases so yeah this this is your this is your book all day long i would say if uh if you didn't get to it just yet yeah no i'll uh i'll definitely see if i can get a hold of it then alan um i there's there's a possibility given my given my background with fantasy and dungeons and dragons that i might get even more out of it than you did probably uh, you know so uh yeah that sounds really interesting sounds uh i don't know what it's reminding me of there's there's yeah Sounds very, very cool. Very cool. Well, it looks to be a, a twofer when it comes to the realms of fantasy and adventure this week for Picks of the Week. Yes, that is right. Um, while the very Jeff Smith's Bonesque Twig by Scotty Young was on the shelves this week, uh, sending its hesitant hero on a labyrinth, dark crystal style quest, uh, and was very high on my list, uh, I could not look past one of the very finest examples of why. Kieran Gillen and Dan Mora's Once in Future is setting itself up to be a classic for the ages. So my choice is number 25 of that particular book. That's Once and Future number 25. So for those who, for those of you who have somehow haven't listened to this podcast, let this series slip under your radar uh, up until this point. Uh, Once in Future follows Duncan, an academic who discovers that his grand Bridget uh, one of the greatest characters introduced in comics in the last couple of years is secretly part of a an order of monster hunters uh, who become drawn into the shadowy world of peril and drama where stories are real and want nothing more than to enter the real world and and take it over and wreak havoc and, and, and impress themselves upon our reality. Uh, over the course of the past 24 issues, we've gone from Arthur and Merlin to Grendel to Beowulf to other versions of Arthur's and Arthur and Merlin and a whole lot of uh, sort of craziness in between, including stops in the Grail Castle, uh, the destruction of an old people's home, uh, all sorts of stuff. But in more recent issues... And don't forget the cops from Hot Fuzz. And don't forget the cops from Hot Fuzz, <laughs> indeed. In more recent issues, uh, in other world where legends have power and can come to life, and which has now crossed seemingly irreparably with our world, King Arthur has returned, but in two conflicting versions. That of the original Welsh Celtic stories that uh, Gillen has linked to the nationalist movements of modern England. Uh, a king that shall return when the sovereign Britain needs him most. And that of the more recent French interpretation of Arthur from the Mort d'Arthur sort of Excalibur type sort of dealio, uh, you know, from that sort of more French adaption. They've met in battle at Badon. Uh, Merlin is adamant that Arthur will not die there and alerts him that Guinevere has uh, cheated on him. And meanwhile, Bridget uh, talks to the sea god Lear, caught in Shakespeare's work as King Lear. 
and tries to get him riled up enough to interfere. Not only that, uh, she left the armory, Shakespeare's armory. Uh, Shakespeare, it turns out, was one of the the original monster hunters with a quill pen belonging to the great bard. And this is no ordinary pen. It's made from part of an arrow which is located in the woods near Nottingham. And, uh, Nottingham, you say? Nottingham is what I say. So Once in Future, number 25, opens with uh, Robin Hood confronting Bridget, Duncan, and Rose. Uh, there are three of them, and he has three arrows that must be used. Um, Bridget tells Robin that the people of Britain are suffering in the midst of a war of false kings. And this gets Robin's attention, obviously, as a fighter of kings, according to his story. Uh, Bridget demands that uh, they be able to join his merry men, who we see as these horrible, small, flying fairy creatures with like teeth in their bellies and all sorts of stuff um these sort of inhabitants of other world and you know bridget has who's always calculating and always thinking two or three layers deep uh went after robin hood she admits not only because he is someone willing to fight unjust kings but because his story is older than that of arthur once upon a time he was just a normal guy who who had had it with nobility, and his story has been changed over the years by the elite to turn him into a noble as well, you know, Robin of Loxley uh, and that. But Bridget thinks his story ties back to Britain as a land, and she's hoping she can use that primal connection, that primal story. And she also hopes that by distracting the Arthurs and focusing their attention on Robin, uh, she can save lives. Uh, she's just hoping that they can make it until Christmas. But first they have to fight Little John, who, as in... You know, all of the legends of Robin Hood is not so little, even more so here. A third Arthur has also come upon this, the scene, and Merlin describes him as a creature of steam and capital, and he insists Arthur must retreat. Uh, Arthur laments that all he wants to do is be left alone to kill Anglo-Saxons. Is that, in fact, too much to ask? <laughs> Bridget, naturally, has yet another motive uh, for joining the Merry Men. Britain was once one forest, and in other words... All forests are one for us, so you can travel through them and you can travel anywhere. And uh, it's just I, that that just really appealed to me. It just it was such a fantastic concept. And they slip to the battlefield and see them the immense mechanized Arthur, Little John, who is a giant, has an idea for them to reach his new foe, and uh, that gives Robin a target. Uh, and they slip away through the through the woods, but they also slip seemingly through time a bit and they end up in the summer on a beach by the sea in another location that is very very much associated with Arthur, at least indirectly. So an awful lot going on here as we uh, as we enter, I think, the final arc of, uh, yeah, of so. Once in Future. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the really cool things about this, about the, the legendary characters in Once in Future, <laughs> is they're familiar, but they don't look like you expect them to necessarily, not as the, you know... We may know one iteration of those characters. You know, I would, I would, I would suggest that maybe we're more familiar with the the Arthur, the King Arthur from the Mort d'Arthur. You know, the the French version, the the Excalibur version of, of Arthur. Um, you know, than we are of of the older Welsh, you know, Celtic version. You know, the, the of, of him and Merlin and their more primal look. And the idea that some of them tie back to older times, to older stories than the ones we know is just really fantastic and getting more and more um meaty 
as the as the thing progressed. And that's the case with, with Robin Hood. You know, he's got his bow, he's got his, his rustic green outfit, but his face is hidden in his hood. So all we see are these sort of monstrous eyes, you know, and he's he's in focus and he's out of focus. And as I said earlier, the Merry Men are like little nightmarish fairies. Um, but the story of Arthur has been and can be adapted so many times and the symbolism can, can vary. And, uh, you know, Merlin described that New Arthur as as being made of steaming capital, and that's seemingly an interpretation of the the Victoriana, you know, the the Victoriana Arthur of uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and uh, indeed he, he looks like a steampunk sort of nightmare of nineteenth century sort of industrialism in the form of a big giant mech. Um, you know, it's just it's constantly surprising, and every time they turn a corner or see something new, I'm just enjoying it and trying to envision the the legend you know through different eras or different conquering cultures you know and and that way once in the future i think works on so many different levels you know on the on one side it's 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 all action and adventure and explosions and one-liners and you know that are you know that would fit very well in james bronze you know with that you know trademark you know british humor you know of, of bridget and, and and duncan especially um but you go just a wee bit below that surface and you've got you've got the the intellect of Kieran Gillen, you know, a la Dai, uh, you know, just fueling this brilliant, you know, web of literary references and connections and characters that that are both obvious and also not so obvious. And What's more, you can you can you can you can do a little bit of research and a little bit of, of internet digging and fall down a rabbit hole with some of these characters. And uh, there's a, there's actually a great um, not to not to plug you know any other review reviewers or whatever, but uh, there's a, a reviewer called Ollie McNamee, I think, uh, on uh, on ComicCon.com, who's doing a series called Arthurian Annotations. Mm-hmm. And he seems to be a wee bit of a of an Arthurian scholar, and there's some really cool stuff there. And you can have a great time, you can have a great time researching them and reading them. And that, I mean, that's the mark of a really well researched and really well put together comic book, you know. Um, and of course, another thing that really helps is the gentlemen and and uh, you know the people that we that we mentioned earlier, uh, you know Dan Mora and Tamara Bonvillain, uh, who were on uh, what did you say earlier on? Uh, World's finest. Uh, Words finest, absolutely. You know, it's the it's the fantastic character and art design from from those two that just you know bring this ever expanding casts of, of of characters and monsters to the page with with some real twists, you know, and 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 it's just some really some really really cool stuff. I mean, as I say, the Robin and the Merry Men and the Arthur's and the Merlins, uh, you know, and the characters are all. You know the Duncans and the Roses of it all are all very expressive, and but but not they don't become cartoonish, you know that sort of thing. And I mean, Mora's line work is really clean, you know, clean lines, Alan, clean lines. Oh, we love some <laughs> clean <know>? lines, <laughs> and so detailed. And Tamara Bonvillain's, you know, color work is just really, really stylish, um, you know. And there's there's all sorts of really subtle stuff going on there. And it really helps to sell, you know, what, there's nothing else like this on the shelves and with regard to the story. And I think this really, this really sells it. Everything looks the part and feels the part and the action 
is really chaotic and you know and and just action packed and uh, I think you know the the two of them Mora and, and Bonvillain really help Gillen hit that sweet spot between drama and, and humor um, yeah so it's you know we've got three we get three renditions of King Arthur now terrorizing the transformed lands of Great Britain the entrance of Robin Hood into the fray it's it just it's no wonder that once in future 25 was an oversized anniversary sort of issue and even with those extra pages <laughs> the story is just bulging to get out of it you know Kieran Gill and Dan, Dan Mora Tamron Bonville and uh, Ed Dukeshire and, and Letters they're entering the end game for this what is a, an absolute one of a kind fantasy horror series the stakes are raised in this issue the threats are pending but I don't want it to finish but I can't wait to see the end <laughs> suffice to say as you can tell Keith so far <laughs> yeah i mean that's it i mean it's it's always that uh that double-edged sword of you you never want your favorite series to come to an end when you're enjoying them so much but if that's what the the, the creators have as their original end game then you just want to see them execute it perfectly so but yeah i mean it's it's a title i mean you go back our previous reviews podcast you don't even have to listen to them just look at the notes and i think once in future's probably been pick of the week six or seven times maybe more than that uh, and I think you may have just talked yourself into my big statement earlier that uh, Dan Moore may be the best artist working in comics today. I think you may have just backed yourself, backed my statement up there. <laughs> well, clean well, lines, I mean, clean lines, clean but lines. But we did just talk about uh, John Romita Jr. and Amazing Spider-Man one though, so uh, so easy, Tiger, easy. <laughs> but could John Romita Jr. draw once in future? Oh. Certain artists. No, this is what I mean by right. Dan Moore's okay, versatility. You see, that's just more what I mean. I see but, what you mean. Yeah, that's, you, a, that's when, a fair point. But when you marry a certain artist to a certain character, there's certainly uh, there's certainly few better in the world at it, I suppose. But but yeah, once in future, it's just a delight every issue. And as you say, this this was nice that it was a slightly oversized issue because it's packing so much in you. You get the feeling that these guys are going to throw everything at the wall in this last arc, and you know, sort of see what sticks. But you know, yeah, and I mean, you, you go through all that and you haven't even mentioned Elaine slash Nimue slash, you know, what's going on there as well. So it's, you know, she's completely trapped in the story and, and the, you know, the tragic nature of her relationship with her mother and her and her son. It's, it's such good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we talk about obviously when we when we review stuff about jumping on points and all the rest, this is not a jumping on point for once in future. You need to read this from the start. I mean, there's there's so many ways to do it. There's trade paperbacks, there's a there's a glorious hardcover which has the first eighteen issues in it. And I know they'll do a second one to, to fit in the, the second half of the story. So yeah, do yourself a favor if you're looking for something really meaty uh, to sink your teeth into, you know, we we've always the first trades in stock, boom studios just knocked it out of the park once in future continues to be one of their one of their very best so yeah once in future 25 fourth of and we've we've loved bridget since her first issue threat to break the fingers of whoever changed Changes the, the news channel. from to, to great british bake-off yeah she, she, she was engrossed in her stories yeah she bridget's was. a great character i mean i must admit i i didn't expect bridget to last as long as she has you you always got the feeling there was going to be some heroic sacrifice along the way and that's not to say yeah. that still won't happen but yeah, I mean, I I had presumed that Bridget would would sort of hand over the reins to Duncan mm. and you know probably shuffle off this mortal coil, and that hasn't that hasn't happened. And I mean, Duncan and Rose would be lost without her, absolutely lost without her. 
Well, uh, you know, here's hoping that issue 30 ends with Duncan and Rose finally getting to finish their date. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it's going to 30, isn't it? Yeah, I think 30. I'm yeah. nearly sure that this is the last complete arc and they've collected them in six issues at a time. So, right. yeah, And that's you... amazing considering this was supposed to be a six-issue miniseries originally. Yeah, I think you go back to the solicitations. It just said one of six. So uh -huh. yeah, suffice to say they took a, a punt on it and it has worked out very well. So, yeah, so yeah, those were the, the choices then from the 4th of May. Quest aside, number one and Once in Future 25. A very fantasy-filled uh, picks of the week there. So we'll finish off with one more week of picks of of the week and it's amazing that they're all following some sort of actual you know pattern here because we're about to enter into the supernatural i think for our picks of the week for 11th of may but uh total wise at 22 this week so pretty even stevens with dc and marvel i had five dc for marvel and again as ever my indie side just completely outweighing them both with 13 uh indie titles there uh what about yourself uh, 19 for me, uh, 3 DC, 7 Marvel, 9 Indies, so Indies top of the top of the crop for me there as well. I'm a, maybe a little more evenly balanced uh, than everything else. And and unsurprisingly then, it's going to be two Indie picks of the week, I believe. <laughs> and we're back very much firmly in the realms of number ones as well. So it was two new series this week that caught the eye the most. And, and again, I could have happily taken Keith's pick. It's a great one as well. I don't think you're on my pick of the week. No, but convince me. I'll do my best. So, you know, it's it's interesting because I've actually started out my review with if I had to pitch Grimm to someone. Uh, yeah, it's Grimm number one. This is written by Stephanie Phillips and then art by the team of Flaviano and Rico Renzi. And as I say, if I had to pitch Grimm to someone, I'd call it a mix of the many deaths of Lila Starr and something is killing the children. Oof. Okay. So you've said Stephanie Phillips, Flaviano and... Uh those two so i think <laughs> yes sold sold but yeah grim number one the reason i would pitch it that way is you know depictions of life and death in comics i think are always fun and this is an interpretation which put me in the mind of lila star and its mix of the indian death gods and all that kind of stuff but then we have the kick-ass female protagonist to root for a la erica slaughter from uh something that's killing the children so grim it starts off at a million miles a minute and it does not let up there. Again, is a lot covered in this first issue and it is an absolute delight. I've I've read this first issue, I think, three times now, which is unprecedented in this modern world of endless comics. But uh, in Grimm, we're, the, the story kicks off and we're introduced to a man who's just died. His name's Brian. And he's having a hard enough time coming to terms with that fact. But enter Jessica Harrow, the Reaper who's assigned with escorting him to the afterlife. So... Jessica appears to him, establishes a few few rules of death and reapers, which makes this an interesting and, and riveting read, all these details you're getting. You know, you, you said it yourself there when I was talking about the magic words to get you interested in this. I mean, we've long championed Stephanie Phillips as a writer to follow, you know, having done great stuff with DC Comics, but as well as indie titles such as A Man Among Ye, The Butcher of Paris, and Artemis and the Assassin. You know, she's... She's great at creating interesting protagonists and has hit another home run, I think, with Jessica. You know, we, we know what she does as a you know job and, you know, she is more than capable of quick-witted comments and sarcasm. But what's interesting is she she's almost the central mystery of the first issue. You know, whereas Brian knows how he died in a one-car accident on a dark snowy road, if you're curious, Jessica can't actually remember what happened to her. How did she get here? which sets up a really interesting central mystery from the very start. 
Bran is also an interesting character as well because once he gets over the shock of finding out he's dead, he's just a one-man questioning machine. I mean, he asks Jessica all manner of questions, wondering how it all works and whether she enjoys being a Reaper. Of course, at first, Jessica's heard all of this before. You know, she's many lines pre-prepared and wants to make the transition as smooth as possible. You know, she's, she's a pro at what she does, but hey, even pros make mistakes and Jessica makes a pretty big one when she drops off Bran at the afterlife waiting room, which sets events in motion. I mean... As I say, there's tons and tons of moving parts in this first issue. And Stephanie Phillips' writing is tight and easy to follow, as you would expect. You know, the characters are well-defined, and that central mystery is well set up. You know, Jessica, she's, she may be a grim reaper, essentially, but she's an endearing character. You know, you can't help but root for her to fill in the missing pieces that have seemingly been taken from her. But at the same time, she is also a reaper for a reason, and there are times she switches to pure horror just to get across how hopeless the situation is. Great writing is nothing as ever in comics without great art, and the art here is phenomenal. I mean, as good as the writing is, the art may steal the show. It's, as I say, the team of Flaviano and Rico Renzi, they, they gel together to create magic. There's always a great juxtaposition of work the whole way through the book as the different realities are represented, whether it's the real world, the afterlife, or everything in between. You know, you'll have dark scenes with an emphasis on red as we're seeing the river sticks. But then you'll have the bright yellows and whites of the waiting room, which is which has to be an homage to Beetlejuice. Has to be. Um, <laughs> character designs, expressions are all excellent. The, the art style, I would say, it sort of sits somewhere between the extreme, over-the-top, stylish style of modern manga and then realistic sort of depictions of humans. But as ever with any first issue, no first issue would be complete without some sort of twist ending and a great hook to make sure you come back for number two. And again, Grimm succeeds brilliantly here. Again, we're on Jessica's side and you want to find out more about her mysterious past. There's also a likeable cast of supporting characters to make sure the full focus doesn't always have to be on Jessica. And then we're introduced a bit more to the comic's antagonist and, and they also get a full epilogue page to grow even more menacing and make over and make even more of an impression. But yeah, overall, Grim number one, brilliant first issue. You know, Echoes of Sandman, Echoes of Lila Star, as I say, Echoes of Something is Killing Children. I mean, those are big, big comparisons for what's only in issue one, but it really was a great first issue. Stellar creative team clicking on all cylinders and, and roll on issue two, which actually hasn't come out yet. We're, we're only one issue in. So yeah, another absolute home run from Boom Studios. Uh, I, it's almost like we were wondering what Boom were going to do next because... Once in Future's coming to an end, and mm -hmm. Seven Secrets is coming to an end, and they sort of needed a couple of big blockbuster series, and this just seems to slide effortlessly in the place. So, okay. yeah, Grim number one. Ooh, fantastic first issue. All right, okay, okay. Sold, sold, especially whenever you're, uh, you're, you're putting it up with, uh, as you say, Booms, Once in Future, and uh, Seven Secrets. Yeah, big words to be sure, but a brilliant and really, really... Just sets up so many great things. Really encouraging number one for, for that. So yeah, Grim number one, my pick of the week on 11th of May. So I have my indie number one. What is your indie number one? Well, this was a tough week to choose one book, uh, for me at least. The new Sam Wilson cat book. I think it was Symbol of Truth was great. It was action-packed and great looking. And the real choice, I think, uh, for me, came down to the amazing fourth issue of Aaron and Azrad's Conan finale, King Conan, uh, or this, uh, the amazingly compelling first issue of Eight Billion Genies by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown, and this was the one that floated to the top. Um, 
Charles Soule is well known, I think, across the comic board, uh, currently leading the Star Wars charge at Marvel. Not something you would know about, good sir. Um, as well as co-writing Undiscovered Country with Scott Snyder, as well as a host of others across and beyond the big two. Um, Soul and Brown were the team on the Gonzo Contemporary Fantasy Cursed Words for Image a few years back. Um, the Eight Billion Genies starts with a young son retrieving his alcoholic father, uh, a Chinese tourist couple hopelessly lost, you know, with this, uh, you know, crap Google Translate device, uh, an upstart band suffering through a love triangle. Uh, and that's the cast that finds themselves in a bar owned by uh, a wise gentleman who seems to know more than he lets on. And after after the word population ticks up to 8 billion, uh, some way, somehow, for some reason, Eight billion little genies are released. Uh, each genie, one one for each person on Earth, and each uh, resembling the individual for whom the genie is for. Uh, hilariously, uh, and that's one genie for each person. Each genie with one wish. That's one wish for each human on Earth. And the Lampwick Bar, where we find ourselves, might suddenly become the safest place on Earth. Uh, and and eight billion billion genies. Number one, we get the chance to explore. You know, we've seen all kinds of apocalypses. You know, we've seen Walking Dead. You know, we've seen Mad Max. We've seen, uh, you know, all sorts of all sorts of apocalypses. You know, Fallout. You know, all of those sorts of things. But this might be the first of a new kind of apocalypse, an apocalypse that's caused by our own unbridled imagination and hedonism. Uh, really interesting stuff. So, I mean, the the book sets its stage sort of fairly slowly at first, but once you hit the the turning point, uh, you know, the, the crux point right at the centre of the book, things really ramp up very, very quickly with the the absolute silliness of it, and, and silliness, but there's a darkness to it as well of every human on earth having one wish, any wish they want. And as I say, it's just equal parts, you know, mad, ridiculous, hysterical and horrifying. And the quick thinking of the bartender tees up what I think is going to be the strangest um, tiny space survival story we're ever going to see. Uh, you know, as he as he makes his wish quickly and succinctly, you know that that no other wish will affect, no other wish made will affect anybody, the bar or anybody in it. Um, you know, so it's 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 really really interesting and. You know, so we we then start to see the the, the struggles of the characters have been introduced to questions of free will, philosophical conundrums that I think are going to really drive this book forward. Um, everything escalates as the genies show up, and you know, within just the first second, there's so many chaotic things happening in this. You know, you just know the kind of people that as soon as a genie showed up, they would just be like, "I want this," you know, and this and that's that's what happens in the first second. You know this frighteningly wonderful cacophony of of desires and and Ryan Brown's imagery just goes off the charts really really quickly, and time escalates, you know, from one second to eight seconds to eight minutes, and uh, and and Soul and Brown just take us through several rapid different scenarios and and rapid succession and you know of of the effects of these wishes and 
other people's counter wishes and create this this sense of of people who are both impulsive you know and those people who are a wee bit more uh, insightful or foresightful uh, and of, of of the difference between selfishness and selflessness just in those few pages it's just it's it's a it's just a concept that's just very, very well executed. And Ryan Brown's art style, I think, is perfect. Uh, letters are by Chris Crank and uh, Kevin uh, Nipstein is uh, on colours. And the comics visuals just go, just go from from zero to a hundred in no time at all. Uh, you know, that said, you know, most of the comic takes place within the bar with a very few people. It's fairly calm. It's something we recognise. You know, it's it's something that we can relate to, and there's nothing terribly, yeah, outstanding about it. You know, and the art stays grounded, and it helps us sort of keep on focus because that's the danger here. This could done, you done badly, you could quickly lose control of this concept, the same as you could with a time travel story. It could just go mad very very quickly, and you could. But I think so. It's necessary for things to sort of stay grounded and stay character focused. Um, and it really is the characters, I think, that are that are center stage. But once the wishing starts, visually things just spiral, and <laughs> you wait to see how crazy things are as soon as they open the door. <laughs> it just and 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 Ryan Brown seems to shift gears so quickly from that groundedness to the comic, from the absolute everyday to, um, you know what it reminded me of? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yes. You know, so, you know, that, you know, that you have the realistic side of things and then you have the Looney Tunes side of things and those things juxtapose, you know, and Ryan Brown seems to shift between that, that groundedness and that Looney Tunes craziness just very, very easily. And it'll be great to see how things go as it, it moves forward and, and everything gets more and more out of hand. Um, so first issue, I just found really energetic and vibrant and it just takes its core concept and just just dives into it. It it you know it, it hops in the it hops in the monster truck and just hits the accelerator and just rolls over everything. Um, you know, just moving forward as hard as possible. We've got Charles Soule, you know, he's such a great writer, uh, with such a quick wit, and you've got him paired with this artist who can who can just switch on this serialism very, very quickly and they work wonderfully, you know, in tandem in this for this wild premise, which in some ways is not unlike Undiscovered Country in that way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That, you know, the the, the, the craziness of that, those first few issues, you know. And I don't know, I'm just, I'm really going to be following this very closely to see what happens for the next the next issue, the next eight minutes, the next eight hours, the next month. It's, it's uh, I mean, this, this how this can go for eight issues, <laughs> I don't know. It's going to be nuts. Well, it's a little bit like uh, what we were talking before with Bloodstained Teeth. and po- The possibilities are endless because you have 8 billion people you can look at. I mean, I'll be curious to see if we stick with the same characters the whole way through this. I get the feeling, obviously, the barman is one of the core characters because in amongst all the chaos, he's the only one that's quick thinking and goes, no wishes will take effect within these premises. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you really see the effect of that instantly because you've got that love triangle with a band, yeah. the one guy that loves the girl, but you know, this unrequited love. Guy. And she, yeah, she immediately wishes that he love her. And uh, of course, he's inside the bar, so her wish won't take effect. And then she admits it to him and he's like, what? You tried to take away my 
free will. you know my my free will you know what i mean which is just i mean there's so that's where you get the you know the philosophical and the the ethical consequences of this but you know i don't know we live in a world where you know right now where where things could go pear shit very quickly you know the age of nuclear proliferation that sort of thing imagine everybody had a wish the world wouldn't last very long but but it's even interesting as well it's an interesting concept that those who did make their wishes quickly if they step into the bar they've essentially wasted their wish you know it's not one of those do-over situations it's like you've got one wish that's it uh but yeah it's a really really clever concept so it is i mean i i did read their their previous works and i've also read ram brown's god hates astronauts don't know if you've ever read Uh it but very irreverent you know his art style is perfect for this kind Mm -hmm. of this kind of book so yeah no good good stuff as well i mean i i like the core concept of it and i expected to enjoy it but i think i enjoyed it even more than i thought i would yeah yeah you're just sitting chuckling the whole way through it Uh, yeah but it is but then there's whenever you start to think about it it's there's a there's a, there's definitely a, a a really horrifying dark side to it, like as well. I think. Oh yeah, big time! Uh, you're you're going to be exploring the depths of humanity in a book like this. You know, for for such a silly con, well, not a silly concept, but you know what I mean. It's more of a humorous concept, I suppose. But I I've no doubt there'll be witty witty themes at play here. Yeah, and and it, I don't know that that it matters. I don't know that it'll be explored. But where the heck have these eight billion genies come from, and why? Yeah, be interesting that whether it is explored. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it needs to be explored. No, not I don't at know all. If it needs to it be, just needed know, to be the, the MacGuffin the... driving the story. You know, you, you don't necessarily yeah, need to go. Yeah. Some genie was bored, you know, across the galaxy and decided to send it. You know what I mean? You don't need it. It's not going to give any weight to the story or add anything to the story. I think so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's not like Nice House in the Lake where it's very important that we figure out where our main guy came from. And why he's there? Yes. you know that's that's yes. one of the core yeah. mysteries. The mystery, a book like this, isn't designed around that mystery. Where did these eight billion genies come no, from? It's, it's more just yeah. to do with what idiotic statements will people make or idiotic wishes will people make that should be used for good, but will ultimately make the world worse. So yeah, 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 yeah. Great, great first issue that as well. That's a an image comics book, and yeah, again, image just keep knocking it out of the park in sort of a similar way, I mm-hmm. suppose that uh, Boomer. So yeah, that uh, that closes up then the eleventh of May. So grim number one for myself and eight billion genies for Keith. So that is going to do it for us for this week. So plenty of uh, plenty of titles for you to discover if you were a little late to the party on those ones. As ever, get in touch with the store. We'll always do our best to source any issues that you need, or of course uh, guide you towards trade paperbacks if you prefer to wait for the collected editions. But uh, yeah, as I say, we're playing catch up. We're doing well now with this. We've a couple of different pods lined up. Hopefully for the next few weeks so give a bit of variety for what we're going to be doing make sure to check out the previews pod which dropped last week as well to let you know the best stuff coming out later in the year coming out in august uh, and beyond that just make sure to pop into the store and and hopefully we'll see you there soon so as ever a really good evening chatting with you good sir nice to have you back after your holiday i flew solo last week wasn't quite the same without you Ah uh, well, uh, I'm uh, I'm back for the foreseeable, and I won't I, I won't leave you alone for too long. No. <laughs> Always good to hear. As I say, guys, hope you enjoyed this. Remember the Ramvi signing this Saturday, the 11th of June. Uh, we'll hopefully see you in store for that as well. So again, thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. And should your genie appear, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I almost feel we should start a Twitter contest to see what the best wish would be. I know you can't <laughs> wish to take over the store. 
Wishes did not take effect in the store. Mine's done. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Bye, guys. <laughs> so I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1 and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop and community hub in Northern Ireland based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.